0: sometimes, a paper trail is all you need. A paper trail is enough evidence. Coming downstairs years ago to the computer, I needed to finish a document for a graduate school project. Here's a little piece of paper on the steps that said, Dear Mommy, so sorry I erased your document. Very long academic paper on something significant. The paper trail is enough. I don't need any more evidence. It's right there. This week on Dr. Phil, a gentleman was there confessing he decided to have a relationship outside of marriage, and for some reason he had decided this woman in the office, they were going to have a special friendship with all the benefits, and so they would put in writing the arrangement of their relationship because they worked together. And as Dr. Phil said to this man, did you check your brains at the door? because a paper trail is all the evidence people need. Some of you this week will be buying and receiving, giving and receiving Valentine's Day cards, and some of you are hoping, beyond hope, that out there, there is a message someone has composed, someone has said it better than you can. You're looking for that Valentine's Day card, hoping that the paper trail, the message, will say it all. By the way, I always advise you buy chocolate. Do something more. The card is never enough. Probably the most significant thing I'll say today. When Christians think about the ancient words, we sometimes think this is our paper trail, this is all the evidence we need. Here we have it in our hands for hundreds and hundreds of years. Christians have said, well, we have here between this leather cover all the evidence we need. We have the record. Thank God we've been left a paper trail, the Holy Bible. The ancient words. If I asked you this morning, raise your hands, in a moment I will, raise your hands if the scriptures for you have been foundational to the faith choices you made, if the scriptures have been persuasive and convincing, transforming, so that where you stand today in your relationship with God has been largely due to things that came from the scriptures, can I see your hand this morning and just leave our hands up for a moment? And of course, many of us would say that. The Christian scriptures are tremendous evidence in our lives. Ancient words, vital, necessary, and that's good. It's so good we have this paper trail because the story we studied last week, Jesus feeding the 5,000 on the hillside, we don't get to see that every day in 2009. Rarely do we walk out in the world and watch God be God, see God doing godly things. So thank God he gave us the Bible. So we know. Not far from that story we studied last week, Jesus speaks about these ancient words. John chapter 5. These are words for people who lived in first century Palestine, and as it turns out, they had a paper trail also. They had their own scriptures also. John chapter 5, beginning with verse 31. If I testify about myself... My testimony is not valid. Jesus is beginning now a list of evidence. He's, begin, he's going to layer evidence for faith, evidence for God in the world. And this is the first one. If I testify about myself, um, if I testify about myself, myself, my testimony is not valid. Jesus has an internal evidence. He knows something. other people can't see. it's internal and it's hidden. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, you have been sent John, and he has testified to the truth. That's the second layer of evidence, John the Baptist. Not that I accept human testimony, Jesus goes on to say, but I mention it so that you might be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, however... The very work that the Father has given me to finish, which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. That's the third layer of evidence. These good works, these good deeds Jesus is doing, like feeding 5,000 people, the Father has sent me to do these. Verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, you've never seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent." Jesus has internal evidence. John the Baptist came. Jesus has external evidence, good deeds he does, which is why the Gospel of John is often referred to as the signs gospel because all of these miracles of Jesus are clustered in such a way to to prove to people Jesus and God are connected. The work Jesus does is the work of the Father. Those are words Jesus has just said already in John chapter 5. But the criticism coming from Jesus is not that people haven't seen the invisible form of God. It's that they have all of this evidence and yet they somehow have missed the message and the experience of God. It does not abide in them. And now comes the fourth type of evidence, verse 39. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Probably two of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament. Fourth type of evidence, sacred writings, the Bible Jesus had, the Bible available to those who lived during Jesus' time, so much smaller than the Bible we carry, scrolls read in synagogue, texts sung, not that much unlike what the children just did here, texts sung at home and in worship. That's their ancient words. And it is with that evidence that I just would like to pause today. The ancient words, the scriptural evidence, the text, the Christian canon. Most every person raised their hand that the Bible has been vital to your faith development. Now Jesus is telling us something very significant in the Bible. He is letting us know that the Bible itself can also be a challenge in our faith development. In fact, the Bible is witnessing to itself, against itself almost. You come to the scriptures hoping this will happen and that doesn't happen. Be careful with this Bible. Be careful what you do with this Bible. Nestled in a conversation of how Jesus and God are connected and doing the same work is this little caution to all people who would read Scripture down through the ages. It's a warning for those of us inside of faith. This is one of the times when I grin at Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this text. In the Message Bible, Eugene Peterson says, you have your heads in the Bible constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me, and here I am standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. You have your heads in your Bible constantly. For a moment this morning, can, can I invite you to reflect on your own personal experience with the Christian Bible? Just you. I realize from where we come gathered here today, we have such a variety of experiences. Some never exposed to scripture at a young age. Some of us, the Bible is part of our DNA in our homes. It's part of our family history. You had the the big family Bible that sat on the coffee table like we had in our home. I actually thought that that was a museum copy, the original Bible. For a little while, I was so impressed. Some of us have the Bible in our DNA, and we rarely open it now. And then there are those all the way on the other end of the continuum. That the text says, have our heads buried in Scripture. We eat and breathe and live and chew and meditate on Scripture wherever you find yourself on the continuum, on your experience with the Bible this morning. I'd just like you to call that experience to mind because the critique Jesus gives... It's probably for those of us closer to this side with our face buried in the Bible, Adventist Christians, by the way. Critique is probably a little more stinging for us, but it doesn't matter if your Bible is open all the time or rarely ever, what Jesus says is true for all of us. You look at the scriptures and the scriptures show you life and yet you rarely choose this life. It is possible, Jesus says, for people with their Bibles open to misunderstand and to misinterpret God. How does that happen? I think Jesus is telling us an interpretation passage here, an interpretation principle. It is possible for people to do with the Scriptures that which they should not do with the Scriptures. It is possible for people to go to the Bible looking to prove what they'd like to prove. It is possible that people go to the Bible to find assurance and security and facts and knowledge so they'll know what they need to know. It is possible for people to use the Bible to secure their future. Jesus says if that's what we're doing, we're misusing the Bible. As you reflect upon your own experience this morning, does any of that ring true for you? Did the Bible, were you taught to use the Bible that way, misusing the Bible Attempting to prove something. These are among my favorite pastoral questions. The phone calls that come and say, Pastor, could you tell me? My daughter called this week from her dorm room. Mom, please, I need help with this passage in Mark. Could you tell me what it means? I'd love to tell you what it means. I don't know what it means. Let's read it, let's study. We never figured out what it meant, by the way. I love the phone calls. Pastor, can you show me the place in the Bible that says I don't have to be a vegetarian? People ask these questions. Can you show me the place in the Bible that says, I must pay tithe to this denomination, right? Show me the place in the Bible that says, people from other denominations won't live in heaven with us. Show me the place in the Bible where it even talks much about heaven. Show me the place in the Bible where it talks about hell and the afterlife. Show me the place in the Bible where where it talks about uh, not having sex outside of marriage. Show me the place in the Bible where it says divorce and remarriage is okay. Can you show me the place in the Bible that talks about abortion? Show me the place in the Bible that talks about implanting a woman with eight embryos who already has six children. Some people are asking this week. Show me that place in the Bible so I could prove what I'd like to prove, so I could live the way I'd like to live. Pastor, could you please help me? Those are among some of my most favorite conversations. But there is a caution from the Scripture. Jesus says, For those of us with our faces in the text, be very careful if you're searching the scriptures for your own purpose. May I give you just a few basic principles of biblical interpretation? The way we ought to go about interpreting our Bible, these are not original with me and they're not complicated and I'll abbreviate. They're in most any good book that talks about how to interpret the Bible, including any commentary. If you have a bulletin or inside of your Bible a little piece of paper, you want to jot these seven things down. Very quick reference, so you know when you're looking at a text if you're inside or outside of good interpretation. The first principle of good biblical interpretation is please pay attention to the context, the people, the place, the time, what's happening, and I'm so glad that I hear this happen. I hear this in our conversations all around campus, in Sabbath school class, in small groups, over at the academy. People are doing this. First, first rule of of interpretation, pay attention to the context. The second, we move from the easy to the difficult, the easy texts to understand, for God so loved the world. We sang today, Jesus loves me, this I know. We can understand that. A little more challenging when we get to Hebrews, Revelation, Daniel, the symbolism. We move from the easy to the difficult. We let the easy inform the difficult. And if when you get to the difficult, you come up with something that challenges that which is easy, You need to rethink your conclusion. Move from the easy to the difficult. Third principle, Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, it also contradicts, but but as as often, Scripture confirms and interprets Scripture. One of the best examples is the second coming. And and people often will say, well, I can show you the time and the place God is going to come, and here in the Bible is how I figured this out. Here are the texts that prove but we would also have to open the same canon and read the collection of tests, cluster of texts which say, you will know not the what? You will know not the hour when the Son of Man comes. Cross it off your list. The Bible's so clear about that. So we, we ought not go to the Bible to show when the hour is that the Son of Man will come if the Bible has already clearly said, you'll not know that hour, so stop. Scripture testifies to Scripture. Well, by the way, it's also one of the ways you can really keep in check if people are off track. Uh, I remember an evangelist preaching long, a while ago, a while ago, on a Sunday morning, he was preaching about the prosperity gospel, why it is good that we all be wealthy, and he could prove from the Bible that Jesus was very wealthy. He walked around Palestine with plenty. But I would have to say, well, the Bible says an awful lot. You'll first have to get past the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor. You'll, you'll have to get past an awful lot in Jesus to accept that interpretation of the prosperity gospel because Scripture interprets Scripture. Number four, it's very vital that Scripture be interpreted in community, that we do this work together. We keep each other in check. If I stand up here and give you some fabulous interpretation of a piece of scripture, and you all go home and you have lunch and you say, we think she's a little... And you talk in your Bible studies and you go on your email and you blog and you all are thinking, I'm a little crazy with my interpretation. I'm probably a little crazy. You did not just say amen. I know that was not my friend Mark. I'm not even going to look over there right now. Likewise... If the community comes back and says, not only are you a little crazy, Pastor, but here's what we think, it doesn't mean the community just needs more time to come around to my interpretation. Scripture always has to be interpreted in community because together we test the evidence and the interpretation. We keep one another in check. And that's how you know if you're off on a limb by yourself and no one agrees with your interpretation, you probably should crawl back to the trunk Scripture interpreted in community. Number five, does it ring true? And that's a little more intuitive and spirit-led. Does what I'm coming up with here ring true? Does it sound like the God I already know from Scripture? Does it sound like what I've already learned about Jesus and the life of the faithful? Does it ring true? Is it consistent? Number six, these last two are mine. In the last few years, they, they have really helped me. Number six, Does it challenge human motives? Does it challenge human motives and and human priorities? If I come upon a piece of scripture and the interpretation would mean that I'd really have to change my life, I'd really have to change my priorities and my commitments, what I do with my money and my relationships and maybe even my job and my future, if I come across a piece of scripture that challenges my own priorities, scripture's probably right. because I'm human and I'm fairly selfish and self-centered and I'm fairly worried about my own future. When I come across words of Jesus that require me to reprioritize, he's probably right. That's my sixth principle. My seventh is the interpretation largely negative. By that I mean Does the interpretation find its life and get its teeth around tearing down something else? I have a set of DVDs that someone's given me to watch. Twenty, by the way. Not one of you, but somebody loosely connected with the church. Pastor, could you look at these and tell me if the theology is correct? Well, I asked the person, do you think the theology is correct? What do you think? Well, the response back was, you know, these tapes spend quite a bit of time tearing down another denomination. See, I don't want to watch them now. If the interpretation or the conclusion is largely negative, it gets its foundation and its teeth by tearing down another group of people or somebody else's idea, somebody else's canon. I'm going to stay away from that interpretation. Those are my seven principles Jesus warns us, be very careful what you do with the Bible, how you interpret. And there is, by the way, another critique in his, his uh, verse there. Be careful what you do with it. Be careful if, you, if your conclusions mean you refuse to live a transformed life. Which I take to mean, it doesn't matter if I know Revelation 14 and Daniel 7 and 9 and John 3.16 and Exodus 20.12. If I refuse to live the transformed life that's been gifted to me. Because the text says, you search the scriptures to find life and I'm giving it to you and you refuse to have this life I'm giving you. Transformed life. Salvation life, healing life comes from Jesus. And when Jesus speaks this way, it isn't only eternal life. For Jesus, the moment a person says, I'm going to take Jesus seriously, when a person makes that declaration, eternal life begins for them. And so Jesus says, if you are going to take this eternal life seriously, why have you ignored transformed living right now? You know all your passages, Yet you refuse to live the transformed life. Now, in your quiet reflection, that ought to hit you rather solemnly. It's easier for me to look outside. I'll tell you when it struck me it was at the presidential inauguration this year. There was a lot of conversation about what Bible our president would use when he took his oath of office. And by the way, there was a lot of email worry and even hate speech about what other sacred text he might use. As it turned out, you know, he used Abraham Lincoln's Bible that's preserved in the archives. That tradition of holding a Bible when you take the oath of office began with George Washington. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say the presidents have to do this. George Washington just did it, and then he kissed the Bible after he was sworn in. George Washington's Bible was open to Genesis 49, now don't get too concerned about what that passage is because it was random. He just let it fall open. And you'll find that there's not a whole lot that's interesting in Genesis 49, by the way. Several of our presidents have just let the text fall open randomly. Several have had inclement weather so they had to keep it closed. Several, uh, at least two held two Bibles, perhaps so they could have an especially successful presidency. (laughs) Richard M. Nixon. (laughs) George Herbert Walker Bush. Two Bibles. When I watched them being sworn in, though, And then I watch the leadership team take off and I watch now weeks of new leaders trying to work together. I hear the critique of Jesus easier, by the way, when I watch other people's lives. Why would you stand with God as your witness, with the Bible as your witness and take an oath to lead the country and then walk into your world of leadership and ignore the transformed living the Bible calls us to? Now, this is not an indictment on the current administration. I am just thinking when I watch that oath happen, what a juxtaposition. How contrary when the grand celebration is over that we all put our Bibles down and live life as we like to live life. So I much like the the president who chose to take an oath on the laws of the nation because that's what he was swearing to uphold. How rather honest of him that he didn't call God and the Bible into the ceremony. And that's the indictment of Jesus. Jesus says, all you people who have your, your nose buried in your scripture, why do you do that? And then you, reform, you, you, you refuse to engage in the transformed life I have called you to live. Why do you do that? So the children who sang here earlier this morning They need more than teachers who will teach them how to sing Scripture. They need a community that's agreed to the transformed life Scripture teaches. Yes? We're going to go to the National Pastors Conference this afternoon. Your whole team of pastors will be gone for a few days. It's a really good time not to get sick, by the way. We'll be down in San Diego. I can tell you now by the authors they will feature, the books that will sell out early, and the presenters who will be in front of hundreds of pastors, I can already tell you now, one of the themes of the convention will be, as it was last year and the year before, you'll find a thread addressing the problem in the world of people who are very interested in Jesus and hate Christians. People curious about God and done with the Christian church. That is largely due to people like me, Who hold these scriptures dear, and somehow when the world looks at me and you, they don't see transformed living. And I am tired of saying that's just a postmodern critique they'll get over. Maybe there's some validity to what people are seeing. Why do you refuse the transformed life, Jesus says? Does your experience with the Bible draw you into transformed living? Do you feel your priorities renegotiated and lined up? Is your nose even in the Bible at all? Or do you treat it like I did for a lot of years? It's a really great thing to have when I need it. If you find yourself needing a little more Bible in your life, Pastor Ken has made it One step, very easy on our website. In the center of the website, if you scroll down, there's a little place that says, just have a moment. And if you really only have three to five minutes and you click on there, he's linked to a site that's very well done. Brief four or five little pages with three or four sentences each with a piece of scripture and a question for you to reflect on that will come up during your day. Are you in a Bible study group? I want to ask each of you in this church, are you currently sitting with other people who study the Bible? And if you are not, would you rethink that? Would you rethink your options to join a group here or start your own? Be in conversation with other people who have just said this morning, this Bible has changed my life. Well, be in conversation with those people and allow it to now transform our living to the next level, friends. Before we close this morning, I just must ask and mention, what what about this Bible for the people outside of our walls? Because that is the question we've been asking all through the series. Faith for ourselves, faith for people outside of these walls. What are we going to do with a sacred scripture that has really no more power in the world than any other sacred scripture? Many sacred texts now people can turn to, including the lyrics of modern pop music. That's the Bible for some people. You're not going to be able to open up the Bible and say, well, this is authoritative because, look, it says, all Scripture is inspired by God, so there. What are we going to do with the Bible in the world where the the new religion in America, they say, is whateverism? What's our Bible going to do in this world? In the book written by two... um, Two Campus Crusade for Life Workers, a rather new book called I Once Was Lost, What Postmodern Skeptics Taught Us About Jesus. They tell a little story of a group of Christians going up to Berkeley and deciding they're going to take Jesus to the campus, and boy, Berkeley, if you're going to pick a campus in America, go for it. What are they going to do? They decide they'll take their guitars just much like you see up here and they'll go out in the middle of the park and they're going to worship, they're going to praise Jesus and that'll be persuasive. Why, if people see genuine worship, they're going to come and ask about their God. And so they take their music and they begin to sing out in the open air in Berkeley, California on a sunny day, people laying on the grass and what they found was people laying on the grass kept laying on the grass and people smoking grass kept smoking grass. And people studying kept studying, and people sleeping kept sleeping, and they went back and reflected later and said, well, that wasn't so successful. And the authors say, we determined our fatal flaw that day. We realized that we took a group of Christians and put them in a room and asked a group of Christians what might be effective for non-Christians. Not one of us asked or knew, talked to a non-Christian and asked them, what might be, what, what would you listen to? What would be persuasive, interesting for you? Fatal flaw, he says. And what most all of the specialists are now saying is that people in today's world not so not so sure about your scripture, but, but they may like to know you. And once they trust you, they may think about trusting the book that means so much to you. I cannot imagine doing my life without the Bible. It makes sense, and life is better when I live by the principles of the Ten Commandments. It makes sense and life is better when I pay attention to the widows and the orphans and the aliens in my midst. It makes sense and life is better for me when I do unto others the least of which I'd like done to me. It makes sense. Life is better for me when I take seriously the warnings and the consequences of pride and greed and deceit in my life. It makes sense. Life is better for me when I consider myself caught up in the grand story the Bible gives testimony of, I see God's hand all over it and in my life. A paper trail is just a paper trail. But the power and the presence of God because of these ancient words, now that's a story. That's a story.
1: Would you pour down like rain, washing my in the midst of you beyond the music beyond the noise all that I need is to be with you and in the quiet Washing my eyes to see your majesty, to be still and know that you're in this place. Please let me stay and rest in your holiness, What of God, speak. would you pour down my faith? Washing my eyes. in this place please let me stay and rest in your holiness word of God speak I'm finding myself at a loss for words. And the funny thing is, it's okay.
0: Amen. Word of God speak to this congregation. Pour down like rain. When we hear that word speak, May the world see in us this transformed living, Jesus taught, word of God, speak. May we all say together, Amen.